Chapter forty three, part two of the Ragged Trousered Philanthropists. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tyg Hines. The Ragged Trousered Philanthropists by Robert Tressel. Chapter forty three, part two. As a result of all the hurrying and scamping, every now and then the men found that they had worked themselves out of a job. Several times during the summer the firm had scarcely anything to do, and nearly everybody had to stand off for a few days or weeks. When Newman got his first start in the early part of the year, he had only been working for about a fortnight when, with several others, he was stood off. Fortunately, however, the day after he left Rushton's he was lucky enough to get a start with another firm, Driver and Botchett, where he worked for nearly a month, and then he was given a job at Rushton's, who happened to be busy again. He did not have to lose much time, for he finished up with Driver and Botchett on a Thursday night, and on the Friday he interviewed Misery, who told him that they were about to commence a fresh job on the following Monday morning at six o'clock, and that he could start with them. So this time Newman was only out of work the Friday and Saturday, which was another stroke of luck, because it often happens that a man has to lose a week or more after finishing up for one firm before he gets another job. All through the summer Crass continued to be the general colour man, most of his time being spent at the shop mixing up colours for all the different jobs. He also acted as a sort of lieutenant to Hunter, who, as the listener has already been informed, was not a practical painter. When there was a price to be given for some painting work, Misery sometimes took Crass with him to look over it, and to help him to estimate the amount of time and material it would take. Crass was thus in a position of more than ordinary importance, not only being superior to the hands, but also ranking above the other sub-foremen who had charge of the jobs. It was Crass and these sub-foremen who were to blame for most of the scamping and driving, because if it had not been for either of them, Rushton nor Hunter would have known how to scheme the work. Of course Hunter and Rushton wanted to drive and scamp, but not being practical men they would not have known how if it had not been for Crass and the others, who put them up to all the tricks of the trade. Crass knew that when the men stayed till half-past seven they were in the habit of ceasing work for a few minutes, to eat a mouthful of grub about six o'clock, so he suggested to Misery that, as it was not possible to stop this, it would be a good plan to make the men stop work altogether from half-past five till six and lose half an hour's pay, and to make up the time, instead of leaving off at seven-thirty, they could work till eight. Misery had known of and winked at the former practice, for he knew that the men could not work all that time without something to eat, but Crass's suggestion seemed a much better way, and so it was adopted. When the other masters in Mugsborough heard of this great reform, they all followed suit, and it became the rule in that town whenever it was necessary to work overtime for the men to stay till eight instead of half-past seven as formerly, and they got no more pay than before. Previous to this summer it had been the almost invariable rule to have two men in each room that was being painted, but Crass pointed out to Misery that under such circumstances they wasted time talking to each other, and they also acted as a check on one another, each of them regulated the amount of work he did by the amount the other did and if the job took too long it was always difficult to decide which of the two was to blame. But if they were made to work alone, each of them would be on his mettle. He would not know how much the others were doing, and the fear of being considered slow in comparison with others would make them all tear into it all they could. Misery thought this a very good idea, so the solitary system was introduced, and, as far as practicable, one room, one man became the rule. 
They even tried to make the men distemper large ceilings single-handed, and succeeded in one or two cases, but several ceilings had been spoilt and had to be washed off and done over again, so they gave that up. But nearly all the other work was now arranged on the solitary system, and it worked splendidly. Each man was constantly in a state of panic as to whether the others were doing more work than himself. Another suggestion that Crass made to Misery was that the sub-foremen should be instructed never to send a man into a room to prepare it for painting. "'If you sends a man into a room to get a ready,' said Crass, "'he makes a meal of it. He spends as much time messing about, rubbing down and stopping up as it would take to paint it. But,' he added with a cunning leer, "'give him a bit of putty and a little bit of glass paper and the paint at the start.' and then he gets it in his mind he's going in there to paint it, and he doesn't mess about much over the preparing of it. These and many other suggestions, all sorts of devices for scamping and getting over the work, were schemed out by Crass and the other sub-foremen, who put them into practice and showed them to Misery and Rushton in the hope of currying favour with them and being kept on. And between the lot of them they made life a veritable hell for themselves and the hands and everybody else around them and the mainspring of it all was the greed and selfishness of one man who desired to accumulate money. For this was the only object of all the driving and bullying and hatred and cursing and unhappiness to make money for Rushton, who evidently considered himself a deserving case. It is sad and discreditable, but nevertheless true, that some of the more selfish of the philanthropists often became weary of well-doing, and lost all enthusiasm for the good cause. At such times they used to say that they were bloody well fed up with the whole business, and tired of tearing their bloody guts out for the benefit of other people. And every now and then some of these fellows would chuck up work and go on the booze, sometimes stopping away for two or three days, or a week at a time. And then, when it was all over, they came back very penitent, to ask for another start, but they generally found their places had been filled up. If they happened to be good sloggers, men who made a practice of tearing their guts out when they did work, they were usually forgiven, and, after being admonished by misery, permitted to resume work, with the understanding that if ever it occurred again they would be given the infernal, which means the final and irrevocable sack. There was once a job at a shop that had been a high-class restaurant kept by a renowned Italian chef. It had been known as Macaroni's Royal Italian Café. Situated on the Grand Parade, it was a favourite resort for the elite, who frequented it for afternoon tea and coffee, and for little suppers after the theatre. It had plate-glass windows, resplendent with gilding, marble-topped tables with snow-white covers, vases of flowers, and all the other appurtenances of glittering cut glass and silver. The obsequious waiters were in evening dress, the walls were covered with lofty plate-glass mirrors in carved and gilded frames, and at certain hours of the day and night an orchestra consisting of two violins and a harp discoursed selections of classic music. But of late years the business had not been paying, and finally the proprietor went bankrupt and was sold out. The place was shut up for several months before the shop was let to a firm of dealers in fancy articles, and the other part was transformed into flats. Rushton had the contract for the work. When the men went there to do it up, they found the interior of the house in a state of indescribable filth, the ceilings discoloured with smoke and hung with cobwebs, the wallpapers smeared and black with grease, the handrails and the newel posts of the staircase were clammy with filth, and the edges of the doors near the handles were blackened with greasy dirt and finger-marks. 
The tops of the skirtings, the mouldings of the doors, the sashes of the windows and the corners of the floors were thick with the accumulated dust of years. In one of the upper rooms, which had evidently been used as a nursery or playroom for the children of the renowned chef, the wallpaper, for about two feet above the skirting, was blackened with grease and ornamented with childish drawings made with burnt sticks and blackened pencils, the door being covered with similar artistic efforts, to say nothing of some rude attempts at carving, evidently executed with an axe or a hammer. But all this filth was nothing compared with the unspeakable condition of the kitchen and scullery, a detailed description of which would cause the blood of the listener to curdle, and each particular hair of his head to stand on end. Let it suffice to say that the walls, the ceiling, the floor, the paintwork, the gas-stove, the kitchen range, the dresser, and everything else were uniformly, absolutely, and literally black, and the black was composed of soot and grease. In front of the window there was a fixture, a kind of bench or table, deeply scored with marks of knives like a butcher's block. The sill of the window was about six inches lower than the top of the table, so between the glass and the lower sash of the window, which had evidently never been raised, and the back of the table, there was a long narrow cavity or trough about six inches deep, four inches wide and as long as the width of the window, the sill forming the bottom of the cavity. This trough was filled with all manner of abominations, fragments of fat and decomposed meat, legs of rabbit and fowls, vegetable matter, broken knives and forks and hair, and the glass of the window was caked with filth of the same description. This job was the cause of the sacking of the semi-drunk and another man named Bill Bates, who were sent into the kitchen to clean it down and prepare it for painting and distempering. They commenced to do it, but it made them feel so ill that they went out and each had a pint, and after that they made another start at it. But it was not long before they felt that it was imperatively necessary to have another drink, so they went over to the pub, and this time they had two pints each. Bill paid for the first two, and then the semi-drunk refused to return to work unless Bill would consent to have another pint with him before going back. When they had drunk the two pints, they decided, in order to save themselves the trouble and risk of coming away from the job, to take a couple of quarts back with them in two bottles, which the landlord of the pub lent them, charging tuppence on each bottle, to be refunded when they were returned. When they got back to the job, they found a coddy in the kitchen, looking for them, and he began to talk and grumble, but the semi-drunk soon shut him up. He told him he could either have a drink out of one of the bottles, or a punch on the bloody nose, whichever he liked or, if he did not fancy either of these alternatives, he could go to hell. As the coddy was a sensible man, he took the beer, and advised them to pull themselves together and try to get some work done before misery came, which they promised to do. When the coddy was gone, they made another attempt at the work. Misery came a little while afterwards, and began shouting at them, because he said he could not see what they had done. It looked as if they had been asleep all the morning. Here it was, nearly ten o'clock, and as far as he could see, they had done nothing. When he was gone they drank the rest of the beer, and then they began to feel inclined to laugh. What did they care for Hunter or Rushton, either? To hell with both of them. They left off scraping and scrubbing, and began throwing buckets of water over the dresser and the walls, laughing uproariously all the time. "'We'll show the buggers how to wash down paintwork,' shouted the semi-drunk, as he stood in the middle of the room and hurled a pailful of water over the door of the cupboard. "'Bring us another bucket of water, Bill.' Bill was out in the scullery filling his pail under the tap, 
and laughing so much that he could scarcely stand. As soon as it was full, he passed it to the semi-drunk who threw it bodily, pale and all, onto the bench in front of the window, smashing one of the panes of glass. The water poured off the table and all over the floor. Bill brought the next pailful in and threw it at the kitchen door, splitting one of the panels from top to bottom, and then they threw about half a dozen more pailfuls over the dresser. "'We'll show the buggers how to clean paintwork!' they shouted as they hurled the buckets at the walls and doors. By this time the floor was deluged with water, which mingled with the filth and formed a sea of mud. They left the two taps running in the scullery, and as the waste-pipe of the sink was choked up with dirt, the sink filled up and overflowed like a miniature Niagara. The water ran out under the doors into the back yard and along the passage out to the front door. But Bill Bates and the semi-drunk remained in the kitchen, smashing the pails at the walls and doors and the dresser, and cursing and laughing hysterically. They had just filled the two buckets, and were bringing them into the kitchen, when they heard Hunter's voice in the passage, shouting out inquiries as to where all that water had come from. Then they heard him advancing towards them, and they stood waiting for him, with the pails in their hands, and directly he opened the door and put his head into the room, they let fly the two pails at him. Unfortunately, they were too drunk and excited to aim straight. One pail struck the middle rail of the door, and the other the wall by the side of it. Misery hastily shut the door again and ran upstairs, and presently the coddy came down and called them out from the passage. They went to see what he wanted, and he told them that Misery had gone to the office to get their wages ready. They were to make out their time-sheets and go for their money at once. Misery had said that if they were not there in ten minutes he would have the pair of them locked up. The semi-drunk said that nothing would suit them better than to have their pieces at once. They had spent all their money and wanted another drink. Bill Bates concurred, so they borrowed a piece of black-lead pencil from the coddy and made out their time-sheets, took off their aprons, put them into their tool-bags, and went to the office for their money, which misery passed out to them through the trap-door. The news of this exploit spread all over the town during that day and evening, and although it was in July, the next morning at six o'clock there were half a dozen men waiting at the yard to ask misery if there was any chance of a job. Bill Bates and the semi-drunk had had their spray and had got the sack for it, and most of the chaps said it served them right. Such conduct as that was going too far. Most of them would have said the same thing no matter what the circumstance might have been. They had very little sympathy for each other at any time. Often, when, for instance, one man was sent away from one job to another, the others would go into his room and look at the work he had been doing, and pick out all the faults they could find and show them to each other, making all sorts of ill-natured remarks about the absent one meanwhile. "'Just run your nose over that door, Jim,' one would say in a tone of disgust. "'What do you think of it? Did you ever see such a mess in all your life? Calls itself a painter.' And the other man would shake his head sadly and say that although the one who had done it had never been up to much as a workman, he could do a bit better than that if he liked. But the fact was that he never gave himself time to do anything properly. He was always tearing his bloody guts out. Why, he'd only been in this room about four hours from start to finish. He ought to have a watering cart to follow him about, because he worked at such a hell of a rate you couldn't see him for dust. And then the first man would reply that other people could do as they liked, but for his part he was not going to tear his bloody guts out for nobody. The second man would applaud these sentiments, and say that he wasn't going to tear his out either, and then they would both go back to their respective rooms and tear into the work for all they were worth. 
making the same sort of job as the one they had been criticizing, and afterwards, when the other's back was turned, each of them in turn would sneak into the other's room and criticize it and point out the faults to anyone else who happened to be near at hand. Harlow was working at the place that had been Macaroni's Café when one day a note was sent to him from Hunter at the shop. It was written on a scrap of wallpaper, and worded in the usual manner of such notes, as if the writer had studied how to avoid all suspicion of being unduly civil. "'Harlow, go to the yard at once and take your tools with you. Cass will tell you what you have to do. J.H.' They were just finishing their dinners when the boy brought this note, and after reading it aloud for the benefit of the others, Harlow remarked that it was worded in much the same way in which one would speak to a dog. The other said nothing, but after he was gone the other men, who all considered that it was ridiculous for the likes of us to expect or wish to be treated with common civility, laughed about it, and said that Harlow was beginning to think he was somebody. They supposed it was through reading all those books that Owen was always lending them. And then one of them got a piece of paper, and wrote a note to be given to Harlow at the first opportunity. This note was properly worded, written in a manner suitable for a gentleman like him, neatly folded and addressed. Mr. Harlow, Esquire, care of Macaroni's Royal Café. Dear Sir, would you kindly oblige me by coming to the paint-shop as soon as you can make it convenient, as there's a ceiling to be whitewashed. Hoping this is not troubling you too much, I remain, yours respectfully, Punches Pilot. This note was read out for the amusement of the company, and afterwards stored away in the writer's pocket, till such a time as an opportunity should occur of giving it to Harlow. As the writer of the note was on his way back to his room, to resume work, he was accosted by a man who had gone into Harlow's room to criticise it, and had succeeded in finding several faults which he pointed out to the other, and, of course, they were both very much disgusted with Harlow. "'I can't think why the coddy keeps him on the job,' said the first man. "'Between you and me, if I had charge of a job, and Misery sent Harlow there, I'd send him back to the shop.' "'Same as you,' agreed the other as he went back to tear into his own room. "'Same as you, old man. I shouldn't have him neither.' It must not be supposed from this that either of these two men were on exceptionally bad terms with Harlow. They were just as good friends with him, to his face, as they were with each other, to each other's faces. And it was just their way, that was all. If it had been one or both of these two who had gone away instead of Harlow, just the same things would have been said about them by the others who remained. It was merely their usual way of speaking about each other behind each other's backs. It was always the same. If any one of them made a mistake, or had an accident, or got into any trouble, he seldom got any sympathy from his fellow workmen. On the contrary, most of them at such times seemed rather pleased than otherwise. There was a poor devil, a stranger in the town. He came from London, who got the sack for breaking some glass. He had been sent to burn off some old paint of the woodwork of a window. He was not very skilful with the use of the burning-off lamp, because on the firm, when he had been working in London, it was a job that the ordinary hands were seldom or never called upon to do. There were one or two men who did it all. For that matter, not many of Rushton's men were very skilful at it either. It was a job that everybody tried to get out of, because nearly always the lamp went wrong, and there was a row about the time the work took. So they worked this job on to the stranger. This man had been out of work for a long time before he got a start at Rushton's, and he was very anxious not to lose the job, because he had a wife and family in London. When the coddy told him to go and burn off this window, he did not like to say that he was not used to the work. He hoped to be able to do it. But he was very nervous, 
and the end was that although he managed to do the burning off all right, just as he was finishing he accidentally allowed the flame of the lamp to come in contact with a large pane of glass and broke it. They sent to the shop for a new pane of glass, and the man stayed late that night to put it in in his own time, thus bearing half the cost of repairing it. Things were not very busy just then, and on the following Saturday two of the hands were stood off. The stranger was one of them, and nearly everybody was very pleased. At mealtimes the story of the broken window was repeatedly told amid jeering laughter. It really seemed as if a certain amount of indignation was felt that a stranger, especially such an inferior person as this chap who did not know how to use a lamp, should have had the cheek to try to earn his living at all. One thing was very certain, they said gleefully. He would never get another job at Rushton's. That was one good thing. And yet they all knew that this accident might have happened to any one of them. Once a couple of men got the sack because a the ceiling they distempered had to be washed off and done again. It was not really the men's fault at all. It was a ceiling that needed special treatment, and they had not been allowed to do it properly. But all the same, when they got the sack, most of the others laughed and sneered and were glad. Perhaps because they thought that the fact that those two unfortunates had been disgraced increased their own chances of being kept on. And so it was with nearly everything. With a few exceptions, they had an immense amount of respect for Rushton and Hunter, and very little respect or sympathy for each other. Exactly the same lack of feeling for each other prevailed amongst the members of all the different trades. Everybody seemed glad if anybody got into trouble for any reason whatever. There was a garden gate that had been made at the carpenter's shop. It was not very well put together, and for the usual reason, the man had not been allowed the time to do it properly. After it was fixed, one of his shopmates wrote upon it with lead pencil in big letters, "'This is good work for a joiner. Order one ton of putty.' But to hear them talking in the pub of a Saturday afternoon, just after pay-time, one would think them the best of friends and mates and the most independent spirits in the world, fellows whom it would be very dangerous to trifle with, and who would stick up for each other through thick and thin. All sorts of stories were related of the wonderful things they had done and said, of jobs they had chucked up, and masters they had told off, of pails of whitewash thrown over offending employers, and of horrible assaults and batteries committed upon the same. But strange to say, for some reason or other, it seldom happened that a third party ever witnessed any of these prodigies. It seemed as if a chivalrous desire to spare the feelings of their victims had always prevented them from doing or saying anything to them in the presence of witnesses. When he had drunk a few pints, Crass was a very good hand at these stories. Here is one he told in the bar of the cricketers on the Saturday afternoon of the same week that Bill Bates and the semi-drunk got the sack. The cricketers was only a few minutes' walk from the shop, and at pay-time a number of the men used to go there to take a drink before going home. Last Thursday night about five o'clock, Hunter comes into the paint shop and he says to me, I want a pail of whitewash made up tonight, Crass, he says. Ready for first thing in the morning, he says. Oh, I says, looking him straight in the bloody eye. Oh, you do, do you? Just like that. Yes, he says. Well, you can bloody well make it yourself, I says, cos I ain't going to make it, I says, just like that. What the hell do you bloody mean, says I, by coming in here this time of night with an order like that, I says. You'd have laughed, continued Crass, as he wiped his mouth with the back of his hand after taking another drink out of his glass, and looking round to note the effect of the story. You'd have laughed if you'd been there. He was fairly flabbergasted. And when I said that to him, I see his jaw drop, and then he started apologising, and says as he hadn't meant no offence, but I told him bloody straight not to come no more of it. 
"'You bring the order at a reasonable time,' I says, just like that, "'and I'll attend to it,' I says, "'but not otherwise,' I says." As he concluded this story, Crass drained his glass and gazed around upon the audience, who were now full of admiration. They looked at each other and at Crass and nodded their heads approvingly. Yes, undoubtedly, that was the proper way to deal with such bounders as Nimrod. Take up a strong attitude and let him see as he'll stand no nonsense. You don't blame me, do you? continued Crass. Why should we put up with a lot of old book from the likes of him? We're not a lot of bloody Chinamen, are we? So far from blaming him, they all assured him that they would have acted in precisely the same way under similar circumstances. "'For my part, I'm a bloke like this,' said a tall man with a very loud voice, a chap who nearly fell down dead every time Rushton or Misery looked at him. "'I'm a bloke like this here. I never stands no cheek from no gaffers. If a governor says two bloody words to me, I downs me tools and I says to him, "'What? I don't suit your governor. I ain't done enough for you. Very good. Give me me bleeding apence. "'Quite right, too,' said everybody. "'That was a way to serve him. "'If only everyone would do the same as the tall man, "'who had just paid for another round of drinks, "'things would be a lot more comfortable than they was.' "'Last summer I was working for old Bouncer,' "'said a little man with a cutaway coat several sizes too large for him. "'I was working for old Bouncer over at Windley, "'and you all knows he don't half lower it. "'Well, one day when I knowed he was on the drunk, "'I had to first coat a room out white.' So I thinks to myself, if I book up, I shall be able to get this lot done by about four o'clock, and then I can clear off home, cause I reckon as he'd be about flattened out by that time, and you know he ain't got no foreman. So I tears into it, and I gets this ere room done about quarter past four, and I just got me things put away for the night, when who should come falling up the bloody stairs but old Bouncer, drunk as a howl. And no sooner he gets into the room than he starts yapping and ramping. Is this ere all you've done? He shouts out. "'What you been doing all day?' he says, and he keeps on shouting and swearing till at last I couldn't stand it no longer, cause you can guess I wasn't in a very good temper with him coming along just when I thought I was going to get off a bit early. So when he kept on shouting, I never made no answer to him, but up to me fist and I gives him a slosh in the dial and stopped his clock. Then I chucked a pot of white paint over him and kicked him down the bloody stairs. "'Servin' bloomin' well right too.' said Crass, as he took a fresh glass of beer from one of the others, who had just stood another round. "'What did the bugger say to that?' inquired the tall man. "'Not a bloody word,' replied the little man. "'He picked hisself up, and called a cab what was passing, and got into it and went home. And I never seen no more of him till about half-past eleven the next day, when I was second coat in the room, and he comes up with a new suit of clothes on, and asked me if I'd like to come over to the pub and have a drink.' So he goes over, and he calls for a whisky and soda for himself, and asks me what I'd have. So I had the same. And while we was getting this down us, he says to me, "'Ah, guard,' he says, "'you lose your temper with me yesterday,' he says. "'There you are, you see,' said the tall man. "'There's an example for you. If you hadn't served him as you did, you'd most likely have had to put up with a lot more old book.' They all agreed that the little man had done quite right. They all said that they didn't blame him in the least. They would all have done the same. In fact, this was the way they all conducted themselves whenever occasion demanded it. To hear them talk, one would imagine that such affairs as the recent exploit of Bill Bates and the semi-drunk were constantly taking place, instead of only occurring about once in a blue moon. Crass stood the final round of drinks, and as he evidently thought that circumstances deserved to be signalised in some special manner, he proposed the following toast which was drunk with enthusiasm. To hell with the man! May he never grow fat! 
what carries two faces under one hat. Rushton and Co. did a lot of work that summer. They did not have many big jobs, but there were a lot of little ones, and the boy Bert was kept busy running from one to the other. He spent most of his time dragging a handcart with loads of paint, or planks and steps, and seldom went out to work with the men, for when he was not taking things out to the various places where the philanthropists were working, he was in the paint-shop at the yard, scraping out dirty paint-pots, or helping Crass to mix up colours. Although scarcely anyone seemed to notice it, the boy presented a truly pitiable spectacle. He was very pale and thin. Dragging the handcart did not help him to put on flesh, for the weather was very hot and the work made him sweat. His home was right away on the other side of Windley. It took him more than three-quarters of an hour to walk to the shop, and as he had to be at work at six, that meant he had to leave home at a few minutes past five every morning, so that he always got up about half-past four. He was wearing a man's coat, or rather jacket, which gave the upper part of his body a bulky appearance. The trousers were part of a suit of his that were somewhat narrowly cut, as is the rule with boys' cheap ready-made trousers. These thin legs appearing under the big jacket gave him a rather grotesque appearance, which was heightened by the fact that all his clothes, cap, coat, waistcoat, trousers and boots, were smothered with paint and distemper of various colours, and there were generally a few streaks of paint of some sort or other upon his face, and of course his hands, especially around the fingernails, were grimed with it. But the worst of all were the dreadful hobnailed boots. The leather of the uppers of these was an eighth of an inch thick and very stiff. Across the fore part of the boots this hard leather had warped into ridges and valleys which chafed his feet and made them bleed. The soles were five-eighths of an inch thick, covered with hobnails, and were as hard and inflexible and almost as heavy as iron. These boots hurt his feet dreadfully and made him feel very tired and miserable, for he had such a lot of walking to do. He used to be jolly glad when dinner-time came, for then he used to get out of sight in some quiet spot and lie down for the whole hour. His favourite dining-spot was up in the loft, over the carpenter-shop, where they stored the mouldings and architraves. No one ever came there at that hour, and after he had eaten his dinner he used to lie down and think and rest. He nearly always had an hour for dinner, but he did not always have it at the same time. Sometimes he had it at twelve o'clock, and sometimes not till two. It all depended on what stuff had to be taken to the job. Often it happened that some men at a distant job required some material to use immediately after dinner, and perhaps Crass was not able to get it ready till twelve o'clock, so that it was not possible to take it before dinner-time, but if Bert left it till after dinner the men would be wasting their time waiting for it, so in such cases he took it there first and had his dinner when he came back. Sometimes he got back about half-past twelve, and it was necessary for him to take out another lot of material at one o'clock. In such cases he charged half an hour overtime on his time-sheet. He used to get twopence an hour for overtime. Sometimes Crass sent him with a handcart to one job to get a pair of steps or trestles or a plank or some material or other and take them to another job, and on these occasions it was often very late before he was able to take his meals. Instead of getting his breakfast at eight, it was often nearly nine before he got back to the shop, and frequently he had to go without dinner until half-past one or two. Sometimes he could scarcely manage to carry the pots of paint to the jobs, his feet were so hot and sore, and when he had to push the cart it was worse still, and often when knocking off time came he felt so tired that he could scarcely manage to walk home. But the weather was not always hot or fine, sometimes it was quite cold, almost like winter, and there was a lot of rain that summer, 
At such times the boy frequently got wet through several times a day as he went from one job to another, and he had to work all the time in his wet clothes and boots, which were usually old and out of repair, and let in the water. One of the worst jobs that he had to do was when a new stock of white lead came in. This stuff came in wooden barrels containing two hundredweight, and he used to have to dig it out of these barrels with a trowel and put it into a metal tank, where it was kept covered with water, and the empty barrels were returned to the makers. When he was doing this work he usually managed to get himself smeared all over with the white lead, and this circumstance, and the fact that he was always handling paint or some poisonous material or other, was doubtless the cause of the terrible pains he often had in his stomach, pains that sometimes caused him to throw himself down and roll on the ground in agony. End of chapter 43, part 2